0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done well over 400 of them by now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch other ones, go to the past interviews menu on vatgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, where you'll see all the previous ones archived in various ways. Uh, This show is pretty much occupies most, almost all of my time and my my wife's time to do it all, and it's made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it in any amount, please check out the uh, donation options on batgap.com, including the PayPal button that's on every page of the site. My guest today, I'm glad to say, is the Reverend Cynthia Bourgeau, PhD. (laughs) She is an Episcopal priest, teacher, writer, and internationally acclaimed retreat leader. She's a student of Father Thomas Keating, whom I have interviewed, and several people I haven't and not familiar with, maybe she'll mention them during the interview, such as Bruno Barnhart and Beatrice Bruteau. And she also studied the Gurdjieff work for a number of years. Um, She's made her mark exploring wisdom Christianity and the often overlooked lineage of Christian non-duality. She is founding director of the Contemplative Society in Victoria, British Columbia, and the Aspen Wisdom School. She now serves as one of the core faculty there, together with Richard Rohr and James Finley uh, of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. When not teaching internationally, she resides in her seaside hermitage on Eagle Island, Maine, which is where she is right now. So welcome Cynthia.
1: Well, thank you Rick, I'm glad we've got it up and running.
0: <laughs> yeah, Cynthia and I really jumped through some hoops on both ends getting this thing going. We're starting about an hour later than we had intended because there are so many technical difficulties but I think we've ironed them out and I hope you'll enjoy this interview. I think you will. So for starters I thought maybe it would be good to just have you tell us a little bit about yourself personally. I mean just, you know, a little bit of a chronology in terms of you know your life as a younger as a young girl and when you first got interested in spirituality and that kind of thing?
1: Well, uh, in the way I was born to it as a self-defense, I was, uh, I was born just west of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. I grew up in a little town called Westchester, about an hour to the west, and that's the part of the world that has very strong Quaker heritage. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother, at least, was a very, very devout practicing Christian scientist. uh, And I was raised in that faith without any uh, its, ands, or buts. That was where we marched on Sunday morning. But they sent me, at least for elementary school, to Quaker meeting, where I had my first exposure to silence and where I... uh, basically learned you know what was formed in me were the basic reference points for the contemplative life in these wonderful wonderful unprogrammed meetings for silent worship which were part of my early childhood life so it was wonderful it was bucolic out there we were on the edge of the the horse country that that opens into the amish country good soulful place back in the 50s when i was growing up So it was a life in nature, a life with a Quaker ambience, uh, a ready accessibility of of divine presence. And I struggled between really two competing maps of the universe, the one being furnished to me by my my Christian science uh, Sunday school upbringing and the other by the kind of natural mysticism and intimate silence that I was knowing in Quaker meeting. So my, my life was a wonderful wonderful sort of chance to sort of test these out. And uh, I guess what really jump started my whole spiritual growth was when I when I hit high school, uh, went was sent to a wonderful private high school in Wilmington, Delaware, which was about 15 miles away. And we had compulsory religion classes there. It was it was a non-denominational school, but they thought studying religion was part of every cultural human being. duty. So we had a marvelous course the year I was, uh, I was a junior in high school on religious thought, taught by a gifted man, again a Quaker, that uh, exposed us to everything from Sartre to Paul Tellick. And it was in that that course that the real spiritual questions of life began to come right to the fore.
0: Sound like you were a pretty given- serious young woman. You weren't just sort of like Indulging in everything the 60s had to offer, you were like, you know, th- taking life pretty seriously and thoughtfully.
1: Well, I was ahead of the curve then because the 60s hit when I was in grad school. (laughs) And so I was in the last drones of that kind of dying 1950s culture. And I felt like an alien for most of my childhood. Mm. Uh, So uh, I had to solve the things on my own. You you shouldn't get the idea that I was uh, sober-faced and studious. I was also uh, sneaking onto the baseball team and, and swimming and riding my bike all over the countryside. And I just sort of, was opposed to the kind of culture that that we grew up in where where young women were supposed to be objects waiting to be invited to the prom
0: mm-hmm. yeah okay I, I interrupted you there did i uh, did I break your chain of thought or did you pretty much cover what you wanted to in terms of that phase
1: no that's that's fine okay that's good
0: and then at some point you got married and had a couple of kids, a couple of daughters mm-hmm um, yeah,
1: that was early on mm hmm
0: and, and um, then, yeah, go
1: ahead. That was a that was a great thing. I I, uh, I did what would be nowadays completely illegal and frowned upon. I married my high school music teacher. Ah. And uh, in those days, it was quite legal. And we had a gifted, wonderful couple, you know, about a decade together. My daughter's come out of that. He was a a brilliant, gentle soul. Mm-hmm. And the marriage fell apart by pretty much what you can expect when there's a twenty two year age difference in it, yeah. but uh, we remain till the end of our life, to, to the end of his life, mine isn't over yet, uh, uh, very good friends and I had the privilege of being with him just before his death, a uh, gifted, brilliant, gentle soul. That's great,
0: and it's nice that you have such fond memories and appreciation, it doesn't always work out that way, you know? Okay, so then you, I don't know if this is skipping anything important, but then you got into the Gurdjieff work for quite a while.
1: Yeah, that was fast forward, uh, you know, a few decades. In the the process I had gotten, uh, I'd solved my Quaker Christian science standoff by uh, discovering Episcopalianism Mm. and was already ordained at that point and had been serving in parishes and uh, gravitating towards the monastic and mystical ends of it even then. But I got into the Gurdjieff work because... I became more and more intrigued and disturbed about why it was that Christianity, a religion who, you know, clearly has one of the most loving and inclusive gurus that's ever walked the face of the planet at its epicenter, should tend to develop itself in formats that were so rigid and exclusive and uh, non-generous. Why didn't people walk the talk? And that became more and more of a of a heartbreak to me, and so it was through actually reading Jacob Needleman's uh, Lost Christianity in 1980 that the first pieces began to put together, he, he said at one point telling people to wake up and be conscious is like telling stones to uh, pick themselves up, sprout wings and fly to the sea, <laughs> that there's a missing piece, and until you can get that missing piece online, uh, you can't do the teachings of Jesus. And something in me said, bingo, that's it. Uh,
0: yeah, I read in your book at one point that if, if one aspires to live the Beatitudes or any other gospel teaching, it is necessary to establish the level of consciousness from which they emerge. I think that's, exactly. the, that's the crux of it right there.
1: Exactly, and that was actually, that's a direct quote, or virtually a direct quote, from Simeon the New Theologian mm-hmm. in the 11th century, uh, who was the first one to be on to the fact that, that that the Jesus teachings emerged from a very high level of consciousness, and that until you could basically run that program, uh, you were going to be constantly dumbing it down to a place where it made a you know a basically an inversion of itself. Mm. And and I could see as those sort of ideas began to wash over me. And again, it was Jacob Needleman who first introduced me uh, to the thinking of J- of Simeon the New Theologian. Uh, so. So Needleman was on to the fact that it was something that was broken in the way we pay attention that kept our consciousness scrambled and low and distracted and not under our free uh, command and it was this that wound up constantly making hash out of the uh, out of the gospel that Jesus was teaching. So it was when that pieces began to come together, and, and then just at that time, a woman kind of almost casually tossed a copy of In Search of the Miraculous into the back of my car and said, oh, I saw the word miraculous and thought you'd be interested in it. Mm. Uh, so I don't know whether that was a setup or not. It had all the configurations of a setup. But I I read uh, and In Search of the Miraculous is the the classic access book, even today, to accessing the Gurdjieff works. So I read that and it was like light bulbs
0: left, right and center. Mm. Um, Before we get into that, I think it would be important to just establish a little main point from a thing we just covered, which is that a teacher or anyone can only speak from their level of consciousness and a student or anyone else can only listen or hear from their level of consciousness which brings in the whole pearls before swine thing and, you know, the parable of the sower, if you want to quote biblical references, but, you know, there's, there's always going to be a gulf. And then not only is there a gulf in the contemporaneously in the life of that teacher, but then as time goes on and the thing gets passed on like a party game from one ear to the other over time, it just gets more and more distorted, and I think it's happened in every tradition
1: exactly exactly and that's so right that you've seen that and you know even our understanding of what esoteric means they that nowadays people think esoteric means secret information that's withheld from people Mm. which is ridiculous you know the esoteric dimension of every faith which is a very simple is hidden in plain sight
2: yeah
1: and nobody's hiding anything but until you reach a certain level of receptivity and nature Reaches a certain level of broadcastivity, you can't see it, you can't pick it up. Uh, my students even ask me when they go home, you know, like, how am I going to tell this to my friends? How am I going to tell this to my <laughs> husband? And I, right. I say, don't even bother because uh, it won't be received. It's a long bridge creating uh, a way that reception can actually happen.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it's better to teach by example if you really want to convey something. Like in my case, after I began meditating, I wasn't really pushing my father into it or anything, but after a few months, he said, Whatever you're doing, I got to do yeah. it, you know, because you've yeah. changed so much, yeah. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's why the other thing is that, that in classic ways, paths made themselves a little bit hard to find. Certainly the Gurdjieff work did back in my days. It it took me actually three day, three years of pretty hard seeking to get myself hooked up with a group.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But one, one of the dimensions going on there is that they say that until a student has enough collected will and is able to sort out on their own and discriminate between, you know, a billion different things out there, and the thing that really has their name on it, mm. that they're not going to be able to appreciate, they're not going to be fit for work anyway. Yeah. So you have to, it's, it's like a chicken picking its way out of the egg, you have to do that work before you're ready to to be where the teaching is
0: going to put you. And how do you d- develop that discrimination to know which of the and these days there's even a lot more to choose from than there was in the sixties, but how do you—you you know, how do you discriminate between all the various things and find the thing that's right for you?
1: Well, you know, I'd have to pull the Christian rank and say it's a little bit of grace um, that, uh, that Gurdjieff had a teaching about A and B influences. And he says most of us are out there in the world surrounded by A influences, where, which are all sort of competing things, uh, making a play for our attention. And it's not until you can recognize something that's a B influence, which is a high a qualitatively different taste for you that you can follow it. And you got to get there yourself. How that happens, uh, a little luck, a little management, I certainly think that meditation is a really good starting point because it, it allows you to to filter out a lot of the garbage that's obviously just playing at superficial parts of you yeah. and to, to listen from something qualitatively deeper. Mention
0: like, the word grace and mm-hmm. I think that's, that's critical. Um, you know, there's that old, seek and ye shall find. I, I think if you're sincere yes. and if you really want this, whatever you define this to be, um, <laughs> but if you know there's something and you've got to find out what it is, then the very seeking kind of draws God's attention, if we want to speak in terms of God. And, you know, there's a there's a grace that guides you. Um, exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think actually we have the direction wrong in the journey all along. We we start from the impression that we are here and God's over there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that we have to go towards God. Oh, I love the fact we're on video. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I and then if you can make enough noise and jump up aloud and down loud enough, you'll attract God's attention. But I think rather it is always the opposite that we are flowing out from the divine at any given moment. As a particular path as a kind of instantiation of divinity and form, and that what we we're always guided, and the path is always totally specific to ourself, what we have to learn is to simply stay in alignment with it, and that 's what the learning about the bee influences is all about but it's it's easier to stay in alignment once you get the hang of it than not to stay in alignment with it and try on a billion different paths because they seem interesting,
0: yeah. I'd also suggest that God dwells in our heart of hearts. So I once heard someone say, "God may be omnipotent, but the one thing He can't do is remove Himself from your heart." And so, yeah. even the subtlest impulse to reach God or to reach higher truth or anything like that—yeah, God hears it. You know, he, he, yeah. you don't—you don't, you don't yeah. have to shout. He's there.
1: I'd venture that God is your heart of hearts. Exactly right. You know, and so that as you begin to listen, and it's basically just an issue of trying to paring away all the condition stuff, all the uh, what Thomas calls the false self agendas, all the all the static on the system so that you listen from the truth, the truth of your being. The old Latin word obedience really means ab audire, listen from the depth. Hmm. And as we learn to listen from the depth, then we then we hear and we align and then the path becomes, uh, if not ever obvious, at least comfortable.
0: Mm mm-hmm. Good. I could sort of get you to talk more about the Gurdjieff thing at this point, but later in, in your book, you talk about witnessing, and Gurdjieff, and th- that brings up the Gurdjieff thing. And um, I'm wondering if we want to postpone discussion of Gurdjieff till that, or would you like to say something about it right now?
1: Um, you're the master of this interview. You have a sense <laughs> of the general flow. I, yeah. uh, you know, put a quarter in my mouth, and I'll respond to any question. But, okay. Uh, well, <laughs> how, however it unrolls, we'll
0: but. um. Alright, let's talk about the Gurdjieff thing. What the heck? I already mm-hmm. w- dropped the bait. So what were you actually doing as a student of Gurdjieff?
1: Well, I guess for me I was spending most of my time sensing my feet. Uh-huh. You know, I entered the I entered the group. It took a long run around. As I said, it was three years to get in of kind of I I, I the first hazing test, you know, that 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 as many people in the work would, did at that point getting in, I showed up for an appointment, oh, there must be a mistake, there's no Lord Pentland here, and because I didn't have the the patience and the foresight to wait, uh, I missed the chance. But chance I find what? To, what, I
0: Lord, missed the chance what, to do what? I missed the
1: chance. Lord Pentland was my my great missed opportunity he was the he was the leader of the work in america for many many years oh. And uh, I had managed to get to the point through Jacob Needleman of of having an interview arranged for him. This was back in 1983. Mm -hmm. And the day I showed up at his office, I was told that there was no Lord Pentland there. Uh And then I I came back later and there was a different secretary and said, she said, there was a Lord Pentland there, but he wouldn't be in until four o'clock that afternoon. Mm -hmm. Could I wait? And I had train tickets back home, so I didn't. Uh, It was the stupidest mistake in my life. Uh, because as it turned out he uh he died two weeks later oh. and my my journey towards finding the work was set back another two years mm-hmm. but by then I managed to show up at the doorstep of Dr. William Welch who was uh one of the first generation magnificent old fellow uh student of Gurdjieff was actually his attending physician in his last illness and I was admitted and uh, after due deliberation about who I would work best with, I was packed off to uh, a group in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which was actually closer to me in Maine than Boston Uh, and there I worked. But, you know, in terms of work uh, and in terms of what are really the criteria, I was a kind of classic example of unbalanced uh, development. Oh, so. Brilliant mind, you know, I had done all the philosophy, I had a PhD, I'd, I hadn't published any books at that time, but it was like middle all the way. Uh-huh. And I'd never been taught any of the, the adab, as the Supis call it, of how you behave in a group. Uh, I was used to being the smartest student and you put up your hand and you 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 got into a debate with the teacher. Mm-hmm. Well they weren't having that. They mm. they observed that when I spoke in the meetings, which I did about six months too fast anyway, <laughs> that uh that I was always taking on the teacher. They said, You never ask a question.
0: Mm.
1: You talk in paragraphs. And then they took to to cutting me off and saying, And where were your feet when you said that? Oh, I see. And over and over and over, it was this slow kind of allowing me to see that that I was just ha- tying myself because my journey, my my vision of everything was being led, it lived entirely in my head.
2: Mm.
1: And so it took a couple of years of really kind of Coming pretty close to, I wouldn't say it was breaking my spirit. I think the more snowflakes among us would say that I was handled unsensitively. <laughs> but, but Dr. Welsh said that, you know, that one of, the, one of the responsibilities of an instructor is to absolutely accurately gauge the student's strength
2: hmm.
1: and push them right to the edge because that's where they're going to change. Uh, but if you push it too hard, you're going to break their spirit and that will be counted as an eternal sin against you. Mm. Uh, so it was a it's a teaching I've never forgotten when I have wound up in the teaching uh, seat myself that that you have to particularly a strong spirited student. You need to go at them. You can't let them get away with, you know, all their enablings because that's why they're there. They're there to change. But you better not let your stuff get in the way so that you get irritated with them and break them because that's uh, blood on your hands. Yeah. But little by little, they taught me, little by little, I woke up and I I finally, a couple of people in the work who were senior leaders with very huge hearts came to my rescue and they, they stood beside me and while not letting me off the hook with uh, with my kind of, idiotic behavior they helped me find a way to something else and to recognize something qualitatively different in me and they they never gave up on me and really to them i owe my they're my spiritual mama and daddy and i uh i owe them a heart that's boundless
0: so you you mentioned being aware of your feet a lot and i i know what what you were alluding to i think um i don't have a intimate knowledge with Gurdjieff's teaching, but as I understand it, it involves a sort of a a constant or intermittent remembrance of the Self and and, uh, attentiveness to what you're actually doing. I've heard a criticism of it, which is that it can make your speech and behavior somewhat stunted or, or unnatural because you're dividing your attention between what you're doing and trying to remember the Self. And the, the criticism I've heard, is, and the, the, the elaboration of that, is that the self is not something to be lived by a conscious, intentional remembrance throughout the day any more than cleanliness is achieved after your morning shower by remembering the shower. Um, yeah. So how would you address those criticisms?
1: Well, I would say that that they're quite right. That a certain misinterpretation and even misteaching of the word can wind you up that way. Mm-hmm. the The important thing that that's often gets lost sight of is that Gurdjieff taught three centered awareness. He said that there's the middle, there's the the intellectual center, mm-hmm. which is actually the slowest of the three centers, but it's counterbalanced by an emotional center, which is not synonymous with the heart. It's sort of the the joint sympathetic resonance of the uh, the neural system. And then there's a moving center, which is not the gut, but is really intelligence in motion. It's kind of the intelligence that allows you to ski down a hill or know how to put your feet when you're walking downstairs without watching each one of them Mm -hmm. faster than the mind. And so the whole remembering your feet was really about uh, bringing your moving center online with its genius which is sensation and using attention to call sensation into your being which brings you into the now and the idea was that most of us in the west are living a mental reduction of ourself and the work can be criticized in that way when you try to remember yourself with your with your intellectual center alone you're never going to get it Mm -hmm. And you're going to do all those things, those stilted ways of thinking. And I've actually taken on some people in the works to say that divided attention is the wrong word. We're not dividing our attention. I think that's a misteaching teaching We're expanding our attention out of a core center, which is somewhere around the solar plexus, so that it can gradually hold more and more in a unified field. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the early work teaching was having people essentially multitask using their mind. Yeah. And and when people understand that they've got exactly what your friend is uh is complaining about but
0: yeah that was actually work, that was actually Margie yeah. he said that when he first yeah. began teaching yeah. in England in the early 60s people yeah. would come and they'd get up on the microphone and they mm-hmm. would they would say a word and pause and say another word yeah. and pause and he said why are you talking that way <laughs> and they yeah. said, well, yeah. we've, we've been told to remember the self and he said well no 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 the self isn't lived by this kind of mental gymnastics it's much more
1: yeah exactly exactly but when you when you can fill up the body and the being with sensation and the i am reverberates from that deepest core of your heart it's different yeah but but yeah that drove me out of the work a lot because it's very very easily turns into this sort of stilted mental gymnastics right and uh i was i was actually running into that in certain corners of the work in my first way and it was only my 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 work parents uh who pulled me out of that? And the Gurdjieff movements, if you actually do them, are intended to help you get through that barrier of over-mentalizing the work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the British folks, particularly, uh, didn't have movements right before them. A lot of the British groups uh, articulated themselves without that part in it. Mm-hmm. And if you lose that piece, the the Gurdjieff work is, in my opinion, defenseless against becoming simply a, a mental black hole.
0: Yeah. Okay. And since we're on this topic, let's just talk a little bit about witnessing for a minute. I think it's treated nicely in your book. A lot of times witnessing is discussed as something one should try to do in some intentional way. And I always counter that no, it's something you are. In other words, there's a depth of silence that can become your you know, your twenty four seven reality and when it does, then naturally there's a sense that you are not in the doer, you're not engaged in action. Action is going on but you reside in this silence. Would you concur with that or would you actually advocate some sort of practice or intentional witnessing?
1: Well I I think witnessing is really a gamut.
0: Yeah, you said that you know
1: and it goes from, on the one hand, it's, it, it goes from just just counting to three before you react,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, towards, towards being able. I think there's some elementary witnessing that goes on in all psychotherapy as you can uh, detach enough from your life to look at it and see it. But we're witnessing, and I think it's companion piece, mindfulness, tend to get stuck in our culture is it's assumed to be a mental activity mm-hmm. and people when you ask them where's your witness they will point to sort of like in the back of their head i think that's totally wrong i think that what the what the eastern mystics of the of the western church the eastern orthodox discovered was that witnessing is what naturally happens when your mind is in your heart yes. in other words when it's carried lower and it has nothing to do with I am watching myself have an angry reaction, you know, too slow. But it really becomes progressively imprinted in one as you move beyond using the mental system to try to generate your identity because it just can't. It, it's beyond the capacities of that system.
0: Yeah, here's a line from your book. Incidentally, when I say your book, I'm referring to this one, which I've been reading, The Heart of Centering Prayer.
1: I have it right here in case
0: you need it. Here it is, dueling books.
1: (laughs) Dueling (laughs) books.
0: You say, regarding witnessing, it does not need to be paid attention to because it itself is the subject of attention. I like that. Because if it were something you had to pay attention to, then it's a thing, you know, and things come and go. But we're talking yeah. about the very subject of all attention, which is um, abiding, which is a continuum. It's it's not an object you can sort of try to keep in your awareness as you attend to other objects.
1: Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that's uh, that's that's it. It's that overly mentalized understanding, and and that's what you were complaining about, or Marishi was complaining about. The people, the people in the Gurdjieff work, they were doing this mental witnessing. I am remembering myself. You can't do it from there. Yeah it just doesn't work it's, it, the best you can come up on is reflecting on your being not coinciding with
0: it mm. do you ever hear that line from one of the Upanishads it says two birds sit in the self same tree one eats of the sweet fruit of the tree and the other eats not just sort of watches or observes it's a it's a beautiful little poetic description yeah. of witnessing
1: it's lovely yeah it's lovely jacob burma has one very much like it he says there are two eyes in the soul he says one is focused on the outer world and the other one is always holding in god
0: Mm. you know nice all right maybe we should get on to centering prayer um sure yeah how did you first stumble upon that
1: um i first heard about it in 1987 when i was out at new Kamaldoli. uh hermitage there that that fabled uh, benedictine monastery perched above the pacific ocean
2: Mm.
1: and uh one of the women who was a sort of long-term resident in the community at that point had been reading thomas keating's open mind open heart and so i had a look at it and thought hmm, this looks good uh you know that an an effort to sort of describe and and develop a pattern of, of meditation based on Christian reference points so I took a look at the book and I, I played with it, read it practiced it a little and then you know sort of put it away and then got called back to it by a completely uh, sort of circuitous route in 1989 Parabolab magazine uh, contacted me that they were they were putting together a 25th anniversary issue And they basically asked me, uh, do you know anybody, uh, anybody, any Christian, you know, who we could put in an issue on non-duality with the Dalai Lama who wouldn't make a fool of himself? (laughs) So I said, well, uh, maybe Thomas Keating. I didn't really know Thomas Keating from Adam at that point. I just know he'd written a book on meditation. And I also knew he had a brief cameo appearance in in Jacob Needleman's Lost Christianity. So they said, "Okay, good. Thomas, it is you interviewing. Mm-hmm. So I I trooped out to Warwick, New York, where he was doing a weekend at the, the then Centering Prayer, you know, center, ashram, you could call it, the Center for Contemplative Living, did the interview. And in the part of the interview, he said, well, you should come to Snowmass and study it. Uh, so I signed up for a 10-day intensive. And so in in May 1990, I met uh, Centering Prayer for the first time. Hmm.
0: Okay. What's your understanding of how Centering Prayer originated?
1: Well, I you know, the, the same information that everybody else has, that Thomas Keating, who was at that time uh, Abbot of St. Uh, Joseph's Monastery, about an hour outside of, of Boston, began to become noticed, increasingly noticed and increasingly distressed by the fact that Westerners of essentially uh, Catholic background, Christian and usually Catholic Christian, were deserting the faith en masse uh, towards Eastern meditational practices. And Thomas had also been well aware and had already been working with the monks on realizing that that contemplation in the Christian community had just gotten rigidified and essentially non-existent. So he he went into a chapter meeting, a meeting of his monks one day and offered them his famous challenge. Is it not possible to put the whole of the Christian contemplative tradition in an updated format that could be used by modern people in the world?
0: Okay. What year was that? Do you know?
1: That was, um, oh, somewhere around 1974, 75. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the monks in the community, Father William Menninger, uh, took him up on the challenge, went back to a classic of Christian, you know, the Western Christianity, an anonymous book called The Cloud of Unknowing. And there found uh, in the middle of Chapter 7 what became the essence of the method of centering prayer that says if you would have, not a lot of words are needed in prayer, but if you would have the whole of your aim, your naked intent direct to God, uh, put into a single word, pick a short word of one syllable, clasp it to you, and and never let go of it, and ride with it as your shield and buckler. So that became the scriptural basis uh, for the beginning of Centering Prayer. Okay. Uh,
0: there's a little bit of a backstory, if you don't mind my telling it. It fills in some interesting aspects of this story. So in the summer of 1971, Marji Mahesh Yogi came to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst for six weeks, and first he taught a one-month course, and then he taught a two-week symposium where Buckminster Fuller and Hans Selye and people like that came to speak. And I was there for the whole thing, and several of the monks from St. Joseph's you know, came over and said, let's check, check out what's going on here. And they ended up learning TM, and ultimately 80 of them ended up learning TM. Pretty much everybody at St. Joseph's was doing it. And this went on for a number of years, and they were happily meditating along, and several, several of them became what are called checkers, which is, involves memorizing about 30 pages worth of notes on the fine mechanics of, of meditation so as to be able to correct somebody's practice if they begin to get off off of it, you know, and begin to get unnatural with it or something. And you know, Basil Pennington came out here to Iowa to visit, and so on. Uh, then, around 77 or 78, Marshi came out with what he called the TM City Program, which was based on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which purported to be able to teach people to levitate and things like that. And Father Keating was like, "Oh my God, <laughs> this is going yeah. too this is going too far. The TM movement's going to be destroyed by this." And I suspect that even prior to that, they were looking into like. Is there something like this in our own tradition? But I think at that point he decided to sever involvement with any TM-related thing and just let's just just do this in our own tradition and find the, the source of it. And as you say, the cloud of unknowing has something that sounds remarkably similar in its mechanics, so anyway, that's kind of a little interesting story of the way it went. And I'm not saying that this was wrong. I'm not I'm not passing a value judgment. I think so many people have benefited from centering prayer who would never have been interested in TM. And TM, I'm not suggesting either that centering prayer is some alteration or bastardization or something of centering prayer. I'm, I'm sure it's totally legitimate in its own right. I'm just offering that as a little... Interesting aside, and perhaps you and I can compare the mechanics of these types of meditation and other types of meditation as well in, in the course of this discussion.
1: I'd be really interested in that, and of course, the early leadership in in, in Thomas's movement, contemplative outreach, came very strongly out of the TM. Uh, Gus Reininger was a big TM. Uh, Person mm-hmm. Tom Hall, who's on the board even today, came out from a TM background. Mm-hmm. Uh, so TM was one of the major inputs for sure in the in the practice, and uh, as as well as Thomas was getting sort of shouldered on the other side by uh, by some uh, Buddhist roshis that he oh. introduced to the monastery, he had an intuitive sense. I, I I mean I've known Thomas now for thirty years or so, and he has an intuitive genius for the inter-spiritual dimension. It's mm-hmm. still, as he's, as, he's, uh, as he's now sort of midway through his 90s, it's emerging as the one great love of his life, the, the inter-spiritual understanding of non-duality. Mm-hmm. But even back when he was an abbot in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, he sensed so keenly that the Christianity had gotten stuck And that it had become overly doctrinal and contentious and legalistic and that this had something to do with its failure uh, to access what had once upon a time been accessed in Christianity under the rubric contemplation. Hmm somehow that had to get kick-started again. Contemplation by the time Thomas became Abbott had become sort of the Eagle Scout of the contemplative life and it was such a high and mighty thing that nobody could do it and if you felt you were called to it it was a proof that you weren't ready for it because only pride could make you feel like you were called to it. Mm. So it just wasn't happening and people were stuck in their minds and there wasn't any going deeper. So he intuitively with this open, open spirit that he has, reached out to what was available, and he grabbed TM and he grabbed uh, the Roshi's. He he was doing Cohen's Cohen's study in Saint Joseph's for years while this all came. He knew there was there was water in the well down there, and he was going to find it. Yeah. Uh, I, and I'd love to talk to you more about techniques because I've heard different stories. Mm-hmm. But I know that one of the things that's happened to Thomas slowly over the course of his own teaching is to move Centering Prayer progressively away from being a mantra-based practice, away from being an awareness-based practice, to finally being what he calls a receptive practice, what I call a surrender practice. Mm-hmm. And... I suspect there were some incremental notches in that, but where he's wound up with centering prayer for me today, I think the closest equivalent as he's come to understand it, is actually Zug Chen uh-huh. but I know he didn't start out that way, and I'd be interested in seeing where he what your piece of the backstory is about how he 's moved that way well there's some
0: interesting and subtle distinctions here um. Uh, correct my pronunciation, but you, at some point you talk about the cataphatic and the, what was the other one? Apophatic. Apophatic. I, I, I always chuckle when I hear cataphatic, because we used to have a cataphatic, but she died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was kind of fat and got old. And explain briefly what those are, because this relates to what I want to say.
1: Okay. This is old, old distinctions that have been around since the 3rd or 4th century in Christian uh, spiritual theology. Cataphatic uh is is essentially prayer, meditation, practice that engages the faculties. Mm-hmm. Faculties are, the, Thomas Aquinas defined them as our will, reason, memory, emotion. In other words, that prayer that works through the normal access routes of our mind. Apophatic, in some sense, transcends those usual middle rational faculties, and therefore is often described as the via negativia, the prayer of emptiness, the prayer of no form. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think it's it, it looks like no form from the basis of the cataphatic faculties, which are much more coarse. but it's it's a prayer that really engages the subtle, higher noetic intellective capacities of consciousness. So in that sense, uh, centering prayer is apophatic prayer, but you have to be careful with them because I think people don't understand the terms. They often think that that apophatic prayer means you're worshipping silence or you're worshipping emptiness. It's not that. You're just switching to a more subtle operating system.
0: Yeah. Now, when I heard you discuss those terms, one thing I in, inferred, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the cataphatic is more of a... A willful, doing, intentional, individual applying some kind of effort kind of thing, whereas apophatic is more of a surrendering, letting the divine intelligence, letting natural tendencies run the show. Is that true? or
1: Well, I, I would say that's probably a byproduct of okay. it. I think that what happens is it's not so much the, the direction of the action, but the sense of where the self is located. Mm. In cataphatic prayer, you're really operating out of what you I would call your phenomenal usual sense of small selfhood. I am praying, I am acting, I am receiving bliss from God, I am surrendering, I am having visions, but it's still coming back to that finite self. Mm-hmm. In apophatic prayer, what makes it possible to step into that larger, more spacious self is that you're simultaneously stepping into a witnessing presence mm which is not doing, but being, in the way that you've talked about before. It's you're you're stepping into a fundamental different system for perceiving reality. And the the finite self is not at the heart of it. And so it will appear then that it's surrendered. It will appear that it's letting be. But I think this is because it's a self that isn't always holding on to its boundaries. Mm. And so things flow with much more... Graciousness and give and take.
0: So you could say that if meditation is going well, you might very well move from cataphatic to apophatic in the course of a single meditation. Pretty much every time you do it.
1: I think you have to. Yeah. I mean, if if you're not, you're not meditating.
0: Right.
1: (laughs) At least you're using some of the cataphatic forms of meditation, like you know, visualization is cataphatic meditation. Mm Petition is cataphatic meditation. Uh, There's a lot of forms of it, and many, many forms of meditation and pathways will start in cataphatic and move towards apophatic. But at some point, when you move into, when you sink into those deeper waters of the mind, as the Buddhists like to say, you're moving into the realm of the apophatic.
0: Okay, good. Well, the reason I wanted to offer that little prelude, you you mentioned mantric meditation and Vipassana and that kind of thing. And there's a real subtle distinction between focusing on the breath or a mantra or something like that uh, as as sort of something that is important that you should keep in your mind versus doing it in such a gentle, subtle way uh, that um, it's not really the the primary intention, really, the primary intention, is a surrender into silence, and the the mantra or whatever just serves as a sort of a, a catalyst or an aid to that. You, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah.
1: and it it helps me that I've gotten conflicting reports about. You know, I never practiced TM mm-hmm. myself. I started right from centering prayer, but some people say that in 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 TM the mantra is recited you know consistently as a touchstone for attention you're given your mansa and you you recite it others say no you only use it discreetly when you realize you're being pulled to a thought and that that's what Thomas Keating picked up from TM so if you could clarify that for me it would would help my own history. First
0: you start by just closing your eyes and doing nothing for half a minute, just re- letting yourself settle down. And then, you know, when when, we close, when you close the eyes like that, naturally you do settle down. You feel some quietness, some silence. And then thoughts may be coming, as they always do in life. And you, if you think about it, you know, you don't really make an effort to think thoughts. You, they just pop into the mind. Yeah. You don't try to articulate them clearly. You don't tr- kind of persist in repeating them or keep on remembering. They just come up as a gentle impulse and they go... So then, having settled into that silence, one begins to think the mantra as effortlessly as you think any other thought, which is to say, it's a faint idea, just subtle mm-hmm. impulse. And you don't try to persist in repeating it or keep on remembering, it's just it's a subtle impulse. And immediately it begins, well, not immediately, but maybe immediately, it soon begins to become more refined, more subtle, more, more delicate, more. and you're, what you're actually doing is kind of tracing a thought back to its source automatically, not intentionally, not like, okay, where's this source? But just each repetition takes you to a sort of a subtler step, subtler step, subtler step, subtler step. And then the thing will just disappear at a certain point and you're left with pure awareness, no mantra, no thought. So that's a brief explanation. Of yeah, that.
1: yeah, great. That makes a lot of sense to me because yeah. Thomas had the devil of the time. You know, and I think it really plagued him for the whole 1980s to try and explain what was happening. Mm-hmm. And of course... You know, he got nailed for it several times because it sounds like, as he puts it out, that that you start out saying your sacred word, mm-hmm. and then, as the way the early explanations used to go, when you realize you're no longer being attracted to thoughts, it's okay to let go of your sacred word. But of course, there's a catch twenty two built right in there because how can you decide to let go of your sacred word without that being a thought? And, yeah. So people nailed him at the start saying that he was teaching a mantric practice that shifted to an awareness practice and then shifted back to a mantric practice and what he was trying to do is talk about this subtler subtler dimension of letting it it fade, Mm -hmm. but there weren't really words that he could put together that, that conveyed
0: that. Yeah, well there's a nice principle here which is that the mind has a natural tendency to seek a field of greater happiness. And these subtler dimensions are more gratifying and more charming. And so if if one can successfully begin to move in that direction then it's just the, the mind is drawn effortlessly toward the greater charm. So there's, there's no effort involved. Also, well, I remember when I talked to Father Keating that um, he had a brilliant and clear explanation of the outward stroke of meditation as being the sort of natural sort of bubbling up of impressions that had Accumulated, and that the the sort of the deep inward stroke of meditation is conducive to the unwinding of those impressions, and that as they unwind, one begins to have thoughts, and that that's what kind of brings you out um, and so there's nothing wrong with having thoughts it 's just as natural as as anything else, but then once i don't I don't mean to be talking so much here sure people um, hopefully excuse me for going on like this, but you know how it is when you can have a thought and you don't even know you're having it for quite a while. And then maybe after five minutes yeah. or two minutes or whatever, you realize, hey, yeah. I've been thinking a thought all this time.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so the reason for that is that the, the sort of the thought is intense enough that it totally grips the attention. It totally consumes the attention. There's not even room for a second thought, which is, oh, I'm having a thought. You're just absorbed yeah. in that thought and yeah. in, until the impression that's causing the thought has dissipated to the point where the thought itself becomes sort of more diaphanous. And then you realize, oh, I'm off and and then that's time for another inward stroke.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I've, I've been working with that myself, you know. I was trying to add my own kind of contribution to to sorting out the the confusion around this subtle state from a different point of view and I I I started with the idea that centering prayer needs to be grounded theologically in the whole motion of kenosis or letting go. Mm-hmm. Because people were people were were you know upset about sinning and prayer and still are. Thomas takes a lot of cat flack because people say, oh, he's just teaching a Christianized TM, and uh, and that he's not teaching anything that Jesus taught. He's not teaching anything that will help you in Christian uh, practice. And so I, I realized it was going to be really important to get a a, a theological basis under that that was indigenously Christian, and realized that that what Centering Prayer is really looking at and concentrating on is the act of letting go of a thought, you know, and yeah. rather than trying to to describe the thing in terms of subtle attractions of more subtle thoughts or more subtle mm-hmm. states, to, to put it in terms of when you let go of something, when you break that subject-object attention, you are, at least temporarily for a nanosecond, tasting an objectless awareness, mm-hmm and that what really stabilizes the field of consciousness in those other states is being able to hold objectless awareness which i see as an incremental learned skill that that centering prayer teaches so i went from from putting the kenosis piece in which i did in my first book on centering prayer to then taking it through the cloud of unknowing to the attention piece and the cloud of unknowing's clear understanding that when the attention is in the configuration of focused on any object, no matter how holy, uh, your mind is uh, is essentially not in the heart. It's it's essentially uh, it's essentially caught in a form which is lower than contemplation. Mm-hmm. So my two contributions in the direction of this 20-year conundrum have been kenosis and objectless awareness. And I I think Thomas is is moving along a parallel track on those things as he's gradually learning to language, uh, talking about an attraction, a receptive attraction to more and more subtle states. Mm -hmm. But I think it's not so much... A matter of attraction is a matter of graciously letting go of the of the attention in a certain configuration.
0: Yeah. Well, you can't sort of uh, storm the gates of heaven, you know, I mean, it has to be a letting go. As a matter of fact, I had yeah. an interesting experience in reading your book, yeah, I've been meditating for over 49 years, and yet it's like it can always be fine-tuned. You can always sort of, mm-hmm. you know how when you're driving a car you're always making these subtle adjustments to the steering wheel without even thinking about it? and you perhaps you could drift off a little bit too much and you start hitting the rumble bars on the side of the road so you come back. Well, even after many years of meditation, it's, it's possible for sort of this subtle effort or, or subtle unnaturalness or something to either creep into the practice or to have been there all along and you didn't realize it. Anyway, when I when I started reading your book, it like shifted me to an even more innocent thing and this this whole emphasis on just completely letting go and... And just resting in God, you, you had that nice quote from Father Keating about the the nun who had said she had ten thousand thoughts in her meditation. He said, yeah. oh, "Beautiful, ten thousand opportunities to return to God." So I don't know. It just had this subtle influence on me, which I really yeah. appreciated, and and um, actually made my meditation even better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. You know. I mean, so many of the problems we have with meditation or stiltedness entering anything are really only solved until that level of self good can be seen and laughingly looked at. You know, as long as I'm meditating to improve my meditation, to have better periods, you know, any of that kind of stuff is going to wind up just kind of bending you over backwards. And and it's like you could be beyond that, but there's no you left anymore.
0: Yeah, I've actually Uh, had people say to me that. When they finally awoke to a somehow, somewhat of an enlightened state, whatever state you want to call it, where God was really in the driver's seat for the first time, and then they meditated, they felt like I've never, never done this correctly. Now I'm doing it for the first time in my life. In a maybe because yeah. I'm not doing it anymore, and this is the way it should be.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that I'm still a C plus meditator after all these years, but sometimes I sit down there and you know I'm not meditating anymore. I simply am entering a. Uh, a state of total connected aliveness. Yeah. That uh, and I said, where'd this come from? You know, this ought to be the fruit of being a good meditator. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and you
0: know, know what you were saying a minute ago about um, how did you phrase it about sort of maintaining objectless, object-less awareness or something? Yeah, I really think, and I like your comments on this. That ultimately, it's not something that there should be any that, that there would need to be any. Sort of intentionality to maintain it should become as yeah. as automatic as breathing, um, mm-hmm. like a great athlete who doesn't think. Okay, now this is how I'm supposed to move my tennis racket, you know. But they just yeah. do. It's so ingrained that it just is spontaneous.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's it, it's carried. The other systems take over, and it gets into the moving center and it gets into the emotional center, and you you settle down and you do, uh, you do it. Yeah. Uh, that that. I, one of the wonderful things that happened to me when I was working with the book is I I got to uh, spend some time with a uh, with a with a neuro meditation guy at at Scripps College who's uh, a student of Thomas Keatings, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we were able to look at pictures of of people meditating, of people doing centering prayer, of advanced Tibetan practitioners doing Zugchen and and we we saw that in the the advanced meditators of the uh you know in both both of those paths that what you see neurologically is this drop. This drop into some you know that that is simultaneously an activation of of the hippocampus deep memory but there's this very clear there's no efforting there's no will there's no tuning up parietal lobes or anything it's like you know Mm -hmm. you fall into the all
2: Mm.
1: and i feel that of after years now, 30, 30 years or more of centering prayer being my practice, I certainly feel that as a
0: kinetic
1: motion within me.
0: What do you mean by that kinetic motion?
1: Well you you sit down on your cushion and boom.
0: Oh you're automatic, there. yeah. Boom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Deeply it deeply a habit. embodied.
1: Deeply embodied.
0: And you probably yeah. also find that even when you're not on your cushion, even when you're running through a busy airport or something, there is a, a the deep silence that's been established through all that meditation, and um, automatically, it's just there with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the meditation is a quick device to to remind you of the isness that is. Yeah. You know.
0: And since you mentioned the physiology, I would suggest that all these thirty odd years of practice has been. Transforming your neurophysiology, your brain. Um, there's plenty yeah. of research on that, the, you know, neuroplasticity. Sometimes people refer to meditation as brain sculpting, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah. uh, it really does change.
1: Well, that certainly has been my understanding. I think you're basically uh, upgrading the operating system, uh, eventually installing a whole different way of making connections. And it's only when you install that that human beings are are good for solving, you know, some of the problems that beset humanity. Because the, the device of separating, measuring, comparing brain that we normally use to figure our way around the planet uh, has outlived its survival value long since.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so the, the, the capacity to gradually develop holistic perception and and in the classic days of Christianity, contemplation, didn't it, it wasn't sunyata, it wasn't emptiness. That's been a modern spin on it. It was, I quote, knowledge impregnated with love. It was a kind of luminous knowing, uh, a knowing from if you want to if you want to translate impregnated with love into more modern kind of quantum physics language. It's knowledge within the felt sense of the relational whole that you're a part of. Mm. Uh, it's a deep it's a deep sense of collected holistic impatterned knowing and that is a has always been seen as a higher intellective capacity a noetic capacity not a uh, a listening to god in silence not a emptiness path and I think we need to get that understanding back because you, you certainly have to turn off the brain that's thinking according to the old operating systems. That brain is just getting in the way. But I think the idea that apophatic prayer is contentless is a reductionism of our era. I think it's a mistake. I think there's a suddenly imprinted coherence that all the great mystics have acknowledged and are striving for, and which is really necessary in our own times.
0: Yeah, if I understand you correctly, I think what you're saying is that when we enter into deep states, it's not just emptiness or nothingness, but we sort of dive into the home of all knowledge. Exactly. I mean, it's even said that the whole the Vedas, and I think this may be true of mm-hmm. the Jew- Jewish uh, tradition too, but that they were not written or anything, they were cognized, that they actually exist in some kind of deep, deep Fundamental level of creation, and that uh, those who were able to do so were actually discovered them there and then just spoke them out, uh, but yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that all makes sense to me I mean you you enter into a foundational causal ground through which the patterns are continuously replicating your, themselves yeah. and it's not a matter of content you can't come out of that with any sort of thing you know that you didn't know before that what you need to know will be given to you in a moment in a situation but it is a matter of hanging out at a wellspring and just sort of understanding that that your own mind and your conscious perceptive system is part of is not separate from or different from a greater comprehension, a greater coherent field Mm. and uh and just to sort of become aware of that is to send you out back into the world with a deeper sense of uh, of connectedness to the stream you're flowing from
0: yeah i don't know if I would agree that you don't come out of you, you won't come out of there with something you didn't know before because I think that you know Mozart and Einstein and many great people have felt that they didn't sort of dream up their creation they just kind of cognized it and then just you know, wrote it down or, or thought you know expressed it in in some form. I, I think that deep inspiration and insight and, and wisdom can often be mined, you know, if in in that interior state. Uh, it, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it certainly is correct that products emerge from them, but they're they're no longer your products. I mean, that it, just as you have said, Mozart didn't say, "Oh, I've just gotten this wonderful idea from hanging out in the akashic akashic records." It was more like it just flows through you in the moment.
0: Yeah, exactly. You become like a scribe or something of some deeper wisdom. yeah, Yeah.
1: And it isn't even a channeling thing because there's part of you that shuts up and there's another part of you. It flows through your own particularity. I mean, Mozart wouldn't have sounded like Mozart if it had been Beethoven. Right. But it's effortless. And I would say it's always situational. I mean, the whole idea of you getting visions, I mean, visions happen sometimes, but I'm much more interested in uh, the the visions that happen on location as you're suddenly at a place and you understand that, well back to the very first conversation we had, you can't push the student any further than this or you're going to destroy her. Mm-hmm. And you just see that and you don't know how you see it, but but you see that you see from some place that you can't usually see from. That's the kind of practical vision, visionary skill that I'm much in- interested in. Yeah.
0: And something that's been in the back of my mind that you mentioned earlier that this current conversation reminds me of is just the, the idea that, you know, you mentioned how you were kind of turned off to Christianity originally because it seemed so rigid and doctrinaire yeah. and, you know, stifling and so on. It's like, I would say that this has been a problem with every religion that, and that there's, a, there's an inner core to every religion that, that its founder was likely living as a you know, daily reality, and that over time that, that core is lost, that, that deeper dimension is lost, and so the religion becomes like a dead body without the spirit which yeah. animates a live body. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the outer forms of religion, but it, without their foundation in inner experience, they become calcified and problematic exactly. in so many ways. Exactly, and, and
1: and I think Thomas Keating very very correctly intuited that that meditation or con, contemplation was the sap, was the flowing fluid that would would uh, would restore the body of Christianity out of its calcification and back to life. And I think he's a hundred percent correct in that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that the practice really just opens up. Uh, capacities to comprehend the gospel which is a non-dual teaching in a non-dual way and without it you don't have a prayer so his his sense that that somehow we had made this so high and so mighty that nobody was doing it was just absolutely locking Christianity at its lowest level of expression mm. and every religious tradition will have a lowest level level of expression, it's always going to happen. But when you have only your lowest level of expression, you don't have a living religion anymore. Yeah.
0: You know how it is that when people kind of get onto a spiritual practice and really begin to make some progress, they begin to realize not only the truth of their own religion, if they have one, uh, they, they begin, it begins to make sense to them for the first time, but they begin to look at other religions and say, oh yeah, they were saying the same thing, just in a, a slightly different way and a different culture and so on. Exactly.
1: Uh, Yeah, exactly. And until that happens, you know, I think that really you have to break through to the place where you see that every religious path, all the great sacred traditions are are absolutely precious and and necessary and irreplaceable like colors in the rainbow. Uh, If you lost one of them, the, the, the ability to understand what's in the invisible light spectrum of God would be diminished. And I've also found for a lot of people that they will leave Christianity, for example, just because it's still for many of us, our religion of upbringing, leave with a lot of wounds, go to another path, embrace it, and become very, very adept at that path. Mm-hmm. But you find that until they can come back and heal the wounds that they've had in their religion of origin, it's going to limit their progress on the path they've, they've chosen. They always hit a stuck place that's not going to be resolved within that path. It's going to be resolved by going back to where the issue was in their uh, in their Christianity, working through that so they're genuinely forgiving of the hurt that happens. And then they're liberated. They can be a Buddhist or a Sufi again, but the rigidity always enters at the same level. Yeah. Yeah, they can be a Hindu. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And... And and where where the Jew is still aching, there will be something off in the perfect Hindu expression.
0: Yeah. You know, it occurred to me as you were speaking that um, just as Father Keating and his associates uh, discovered centering prayer in their own tradition as a very effective technique for unfolding the, the experiential dimension that the religion's words had been referring to. There may mm-hmm. be some such thing in every religion, if it could be found. I mean, Islam and, and well, Hinduism has a lot of them, pretty active already, and so does Buddhism, but uh, Judaism and, you know, every religion must have these sort of hidden keys if they can only be exhumed and, and properly understood.
1: Yeah, exactly. And along with the Gurjeef work that another of the very great gifts that came to me in my in my practice of Christianity, uh, has been time spent seriously working with uh with some uh Rafi Sufis, mm-hmm. uh mostly in British Columbia. Uh but to have the to have the touch of that whole wonderful Sufi presence which which I think took the transmission of the living heart of Christ and kept it alive in in almost more pure form than any other place, without ever acknowledging it as Christ or any of that. Uh, it just it was able to open for me and really engage the emotional center in a way that had never happened before. So again, I've I've seen many times how the the great traditions bootstrap each other. And realize that they have to pull each other up because we're all, you know, we're all needed. Either we're all needed, or none of us are needed. <laughs> we sink or swim together. Yeah,
0: and you know what I often do is when I think along these lines, is I think of the fact that, you know, according to NASA, with the Kepler telescope and so on, there, there are probably as many Earth-like planets in the universe as there are grains of sand in the Earth. That it's rather small to just think of the religions that we know about. I mean, I think that there are probably trillions of religions <laughs> throughout the yeah. universe, all of them referring basically to the same thing whether they know it or not. And yeah. you know, all of them potentially viable paths to that, you know, inner reality. Yeah, I think so. That keeps you humble as you gaze at the stars. <laughs> it does. That's uh, yeah. my screensaver on my computer is always pictures of galaxies. Keeps things in perspective. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take a little interlude here and ask a few questions that people have sent in and then I have plenty more I want to talk okay. about. And, and from your side, if anything comes to mind, just as I'm doing as we speak, if mm-hmm. anything comes to mind that I'm not thinking of to ask you, just pop it out, you know, and we'll get into okay, it. Okay, sure. So here's a few questions. Um, so We were just talking about Hinduism and stuff. Uh, a fellow named David Laws from Hampshire, England wants to know, what do you make of the evidence for reincarnation and cases of people seeming to remember people in this life from past lives?
1: Well you know I would have to say it's never been useful to my own work mm-hmm. and I know that that some of the early Christians uh, seem to, origin in particular, seem to be very attracted to this. One of the reasons it hasn't been useful to me is because I think that in the West we tend to get it in dumbed-down versions but the I that continues to be born, the eye that remembers something, the eye that always seems to me like a more finite eye it's like I just keep having serial lives. My sense is that we get this one shot in this form. Mm. And that the continuation, which is clear, goes on in other forms and other dimensions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that the idea of reincarnation is probably a necessary bookend to karma but that if you you can cut through the whole thing and and i'm not going to say that the, that the teachings about coming back and finding the tulku karmapa are not true i think that we live these things into reality in the fields that we live in and i think in a buddhist reality reincarnation has a very very different flavor to it than it does in a western reality mm-hmm. but for my my work i've found that it's much more useful to think about that I'm out of this finite form when I'm out of it, and that, that what has, uh, has retained any kind of viable solidity in another dimension will, will either do that or not do it. If it doesn't, I'm dissolved back into primitive elements again. If something sustains, it sustains. But I don't think there's any need for continuance, uh, certainly not my continuance. I, I realized one day, walking up a path, that sort of popped into my head. Oh, I could disappear, and God and the cosmos would still be fine. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a what a relief! <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I would say I basically pass on that question. I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly in no basis to, to, to judge whether I, in any august way, deem it true or false. It just hasn't been one of the, the principles I find useful to work with. Okay, sure, fair enough.
0: I would add that, whatever the reality of the universe may be, it's not in, dependent upon us for its existence. And you know, there isn't like Buddhist reality and Hindu reality, and you know, yeah. any, any more than there's Buddhist gravity and Hindu gravity. Um, yeah. The universe probably works the way it works. If there's reincarnation, there is. If there isn't, there isn't. I, I'm not yeah. sure we get yeah. to choose.
1: Yeah, well, I think we we call into being, as societies, you know, Sheldrake called them morphogenetic fields, Mm -hmm. but when you have a group of people uh, really poised around and feeding energy into and drawing meaning from a practice, it does live it into existence a little bit.
0: Mm. At least it makes it more real for them or more vivid in their awareness. Yeah,
1: and I don't think this is entirely just subjectivity. I mean, there's a a Eucharistic reality that, uh, you know, for the... For the believing Christians in a sphere, um, Christ does literally become, um, you know, uh, present in the body and the bread. And when you're in a sphere where nobody thinks that way and they think it's crazy or totemistic, um, you know, it doesn't come through with that kind of clout. Mm. So I, I think that there is a feedback loop between, call it funky Heisenberg, but that where the perceiver is coming from is part of the dimension of the field
0: Explain that last sentence.
1: Well, that that the deep beliefs that we create, even if they are totally false and dangerous, become part of lived reality. To take it to a perhaps political and dangerous extreme now, we've seen such a rise in this country of racism and bigotry uh, just in the past few months because the thing is out there. It's become what Valentine Tomberg called an egregore. It, it begins to have psychic critical mass and then it easily downloads its forms in people's minds and the more they're into it, the more they live it into existence. So, so I think there's a need to be responsible and responsive to the thought form climates in which you live. Mm realizing that there there may not be such a thing as a universal objective scientific Newtonian truth which is applicable everywhere. And, you know, and I think that that the that when I was in Bhutan and spent some time with Bhutanese Buddhism, the configurations, the the angry deities, all of that sort of stuff that doesn't have much meaning in my Western world had a felt sense of depth and coherence because it was on location. And I think we do need to factor in the particularity of each
0: stream. I think I see what you mean. So it's like if enough people are believing a thing or thinking along certain lines, it it sort of gives it a uh, a bit of uh, some kind of a reality, like in Ghostbusters, yeah. you know, the, towards yeah. the end when they were up on the top of that building and they, they said, you know, don't think of your worst fear or whatever it was. And then one of them yeah. thought of the stay puffed marshmallow man and he came marching along. He kind of gave yeah. it gave yeah. it form.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can, we gotta be careful about our thought forms and what we call into existence and what we work with because we can, whether or not something is true, it can be real.
0: Good but I would also say that the well, it's real to a point. I mean, it's it's yeah. re- relatively real. It's a, it's a sort of a manifestation or a fabrication of collective consciousness. But I, I would I would posit that there are deeper truths that are beyond the whims of human understanding and and belief and attention. That sort of you know more. There, there's an old saying that which is closest to truth lasts longest. So yeah. and I'm sure there's something in Plato or, or whatever about this, but that that when you really get down to the bedrock of reality there there are certain fundamental laws of nature that are immutable uh, and that are not subservient to our understanding or whims,
1: yeah, but our fascism and hostility uh, could wind up blowing up the planet oh, of course and, yeah. uh, you know so that there is certain there is a certain uh, importance in being careful with the sort of transient realities we create.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I don't think yeah. the two points we're yeah. making are, are contradictory. Yeah, are different. Yeah, no. I don't either. Okay, good. Well, I think we've beat that one to death. Um, <laughs> yeah. And any of these things, if pe- if people find this thought-provoking and want to pop a question and go to the upcoming interviews page on BatGap and there's a form at the bottom of the page. Um, here's a question from a Julie Hanzi who wants to know, does Cynthia believe that breathing and practices to open the heart help prepare the body for the experience of being aware of the divine's indwelling?
1: Yes and no. I think that embodiment is really, really important. I mean, I think embodiment was the neglected piece of the, particularly the Christian tradition for many, many, many centuries. So I would say that embodiment is good, but I'm a little bit reluctant about this preparing the way for the thing, because it already sets it up on the I am doing this, I am getting better, there is a goal, I'm going to get there, and the point is that the divine intimacy can come screeching in out of anywhere, and all of a sudden you're, you know... You're coffee-logged, you're sleep-deprived, you're in the middle of a a freeway in a traffic jam, you're late for your appointment, and boom, all of a sudden, for some reason you have no idea where it came from. You're in the heart of the divine intimacy. So that I think it's really important to take our practices as fruits and gratitude of the oneness, as, as, as avenues of expressing our joy of participation, rather than a means of acquiring something or making it better. Mm.
0: But can't we create the conditions that are more conducive to a deep practice? For instance, if you've been up all night partying and, and you know, drinking or whatever, and in the morning you have a couple of cups of coffee to wake yourself up and then you sit down to do centering prayer, it's not going to go as well <laughs> as if you had you know, taken better care of your body. So I mean, all these practices of yoga and this and that aren't they meant to sort of re- just culture the physiology to, to give us a, a bit more of an advantage in terms of clarity of experience?
1: Well, I would disagree with that, and I've been incorrect politically incorrect for years. Uh-huh. But I've often I've often had friends who I. We were sitting down to meditate one day with some dear friends of mine in Toronto. And just as we were sitting down, the phone rang and it was an angry person wanting where the electrical bill was mm-hmm. and threatening to disconnect. And he hung up the phone in a fury. And I said, I thought we were meditating. He says, how can you to meditate now? When do I calm down? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea of trying to start by physically inducing a calm state or a deep state or a preferred state. And then meditating is, I think, a backwards understanding of meditation, and it's a very powerful and common one. And it may be that TM and uh, the yoga movement have contributed to it, but we tend to think that meditation is about optimal states. And I I don't think it has anything to do with optimal states. I think it has to do with, with the instant, timeless, causal connection of consciousness to consciousness. And uh, I not only believe but have experienced it many times that it's, it's often when you're in the quote quote worst states that meditation becomes the most powerful, the most fully contrasting because it doesn't operate at the level so that it's, uh, it's manipulable by outer factors. What you can increase is your subjective experience of having what you have pre-identified as an optimal experience. I think it's a trap. And uh, I'm with A.H. Almas here. He's got in his wonderful, wonderful book, uh, Runaway Realization. He names this trap so clearly that we use our embodied practices in order to acquire what we think are better meditation experiences, deeper states, profounder. That we think are closer to god and he says that's backwards and i agree with him i think that the the realization of our undivisible oneness is instantaneous and timeless and it's out of that that we get motivated to take care of our bodies and embody our bodies uh, so that there can be a fullness a fuller more more rich presence and how we carry that instantaneous oneness out, how we embody it, how we connect. Yeah. So I I find that the practices are the fruits of oneness and not the means to it.
0: I agree with you, and I can still play the devil's advocate even though I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I'm reminded of Jerry Seinfeld, who's been meditating for decades, and, and he said one time that he, he would have continued, he got kind of burned out and stopped doing the Seinfeld show, and a friend of his said, well, you meditate, don't you? And he said, yeah, in the afternoon, and he said, oh, you should do it in the morning too. And he said, why? I've just slept all night. I don't feel the need to do it in the morning. He said, do it in the morning. It'll set you up for a better day. And uh, And he said but the thing is in the afternoon he felt the contrast you mentioned contrast because he was tired he was mm-hmm. doing stuff all day so sometimes when you're tired or things have been crazy you the, the contrast can seem um, you know like you're, it's giving it's giving rise to a more profound experience um, and i'll also acknowledge that having a, any kind of experience is really not the purpose of meditation like father keating says you'll you'll understand the you'll know the benefits of it from how it goes in activity right mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's the fruits and life, exactly.
0: But you do devote a whole chapter in your book to um, neurophysiology, and and we've talked about how this is a long-term process of restructuring the functioning of the neurophysiology. So I would say, in response to Julie's question, that anything, even like diet and exercise and anything else, which is conducive to a healthier body, healthier physiology, will be conducive to the improvement of everything, whether meditation or your health or yeah. your, your relationships or anything else. This is the instrument through which we do everything.
1: Exactly, yeah. So try to be sane, try to be respectful, and try to be grateful of it. But don't be afraid because, because meditation isn't delicate, and these, these, these subtle states, although they're subtle, are not delicate. Yeah. And they're, they're strong, they're lion's.
0: Well, I definitely have seen meditators, including long-term meditators, get really weird model, mollycoddling themselves and just getting yeah. really fussy about you know everything, what, what they eat, how they dress, uh, and I don't know, just getting off balance. So I mean, yeah. anything it's, can be taken to extremes.
1: Exactly. When fear enters in, it's a distortion. Mm-hmm. And the fear that if I don't meditate, if I don't eat right, if I don't, you know, if I, then I will have less. Whatever pushes you into a scarcity mentality is going to be going in the, is going to introduce one of those subtle distortions, I think. Yeah. And that sometimes I just blow it out for the fun of it, just because I think life is a forgiving partner and an exuberant partner. And that, that our practice really needs to be allowing us to live life more exuberantly, not with more and more guarded measuredness.
0: Yeah, yeah, so certainly meditate, but then plunge into activity, don't be afraid of it. Um, yeah. you know, enjoy yeah. life to the fullest, 200%. Exactly. A exactly. question came in from a Susan in New York who says, who, what is Jesus? Just now Cynthia mentioned the Living Heart of Christ. Could you ask her to explain what that means to her?
1: Yeah, well, there's a simple little question. <laughs> I think what I'd like to do is to give a sort of descriptive world description of it. That I think Jesus is one of our great human treasures. Mm-hmm that he's one of the great messengers that seems to have been sent to the cosmos from all the in all the great religious paths to prod us along to open up new horizons of consciousness and new standards of behavior new visions of possibility and Jesus is one of the great ones so I think his his per- particular message that he that he took on cosmically was to model uh, and teach non-dual consciousness in the West for the first time mm-hmm. the the vision of uh, the vision of the world if it was lived out of an undivided clear heart and he brought that he taught that it was happening in other parts of the world there's a there's a lot of energy there's a lot of conversation between Jesus and Mahayana Buddhism I mean because these movements don't just compete they all flow across the the planet in great waves. But I find that that, that is a, a comprehensive and safe and comfortable way of talking about the great ones that gets us out of the usual theological things that Christians wind up in. Is, is he the only son of God? Well, you can hear the dualistic thinking in that. You can hear how, you know, the very thing that sent me screaming from Christianity, the need to, to control a non-dual gift with all these dualistic categories Mm. but he's a great teacher he's a first order guru and whether you think he's the only one that was ever the divine son of god or not the one thing that is true is that first order gurus don't disappear from the planet that they're always there first order first First order i see yeah the highest ones right. he's he's definitely those which means that his presence is accessible here and now mm-hmm. I mean and a lot of Christians have gotten very deluded about well he's gone and he'll be back at the end of time mm. but every time he enters your life which can be constantly it's the end of time <laughs> uh, and uh, so gotcha he's an infinite and still configured personal presence tending shepherding, aiding, uh, illumining, and drawing the planet forward. Mm. In my understanding, in my trying uh, to extend this, he would not be the only one, because this limits the vastness of the imagination of the divine, but he's the one that most immediately impacts on my sphere of existence. I see him as operating in, in deep solidarity and unitive love uh, with other great teachers both on this planet and no doubt on other planets, to aid in the perfecting of consciousness towards its divine capacity.
0: Yeah, when somebody tries to tell me the only Son of God thing, I I tend to start talking astronomy with them and bring out that kind of a point about the number of Earth-like planets in the universe, and then I say, okay, if the only Son of God then is he kind of on tour the way Santa Claus is on, New Year, on Christmas Eve, where he has to hit all these households in a short period of time. Yeah. And, and if so, I mean, and if the, world is only, if the universe is only 6,000 years old, then we've really got a problem because he's got to cover a lot of ground and he couldn't possibly stay on every planet for 33 years. But they usually hang up the phone once I get to that point.
1: Exactly. It's the, it's the problem with doing the, the, the limitless, boundless nature of non-dual love with the mind. Because we wind up making a fool of ourselves, because the categories we're wired to think in can't handle the immensity of it.
0: Yeah. So we haven't talked. We haven't talked a lot about a lot of things here that we could get into, but um, obviously, non-duality is a hot term these days. There's the Science and Non-Duality conference which you and I are going to in a couple of weeks, and everybody's writing books about non-duality. Let's have your take on non-duality and maybe you could also allude to what Father Keating and Richard Rohr and people like that understand it to mean.
1: Well, I think the problem is when you throw this term into Christianity, you're dealing with a term that just didn't exist in Christian self-consciousness for um, more than the last 50 years. It was just never a category that, that... christians or the western christians used to compute reality mm. so when the term
0: I was brought in
1: well they wouldn't call that non-duality
0: oh i mean Jesus I'm, I'm not non-duality. yeah <laughs> in, in his they, experience
1: i mean i the experience exists yeah. but it was never language that way okay. you would not you would not have that explained in a theology class as non-duality you would have it you would have have it uh, explained as uh, homeo, the homeoousis, or the consubstantial nature of father and son. They didn't use the categories uh, because the West was never given to thinking about things in levels of consciousness. Uh-huh. That map, the kind of map we're all used to—the Ken Wilber map, the Spiral Dynamics map—never uh, really existed in the West. They they thought in terms of degrees of oneness. Uh, Of affective union. How close can you get? It was much more like a lovemaking model than it was a a levels of consciousness level. So when the term began to be popular in the great interspiritual dialogues of the late 20th century, people started scrambling to figure out what it means. And I don't know any two Christians that have the same idea of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that that, as I say, Richard, for Richard Rohr, who I think has the simplest and most straight up and easily accessible version of it, uh, it's the opposite of duality. And what duality is is polarized thinking, is either or thinking, this and not this thinking. And so, for Richard, uh, non duality really begins in and is largely about paradox tolerance and process tolerance. Mm that you can live with things in the messiness of becoming, that you don't have to be pushed towards one extreme or another. So there are definitely advanced categories of of psyche. But I'm not sure it would qualify for non-dual consciousness the way Ken Wilber's using the term. I'm not sure it wouldn't. And... Many people try to see non duality or unity or unity consciousness as somehow equivalent to the highest state in the classic Christian roadmaps, which was the unitive state, the state of being one with God. But I, I think that's more of a way of extending a comparison because the again the the Western tradition is not filtering for is not measuring for levels of consciousness. Uh, my my way of using the term is perhaps uh, unique uh, to my own looking at it, but I think you have to start looking at the operating system that's running and how it's setting up the perceptual field. Uh, and dualistic consciousness runs the program of, of identity through differentiation. It's a core principle of logic. It's a core, I am me because I'm different from you. Mm-hmm. And that non-dual perception doesn't structure reality that way. It grasps a pattern, it it sees the mandala and all its wholeness. And that doesn't mean that it cancels out the the individual parts. A lot of people confuse non-duality with monism, with it's all one. Uh, But it's a oneness that admits for great particularity, great, great etching in of individual bits and pieces that are objectively different. You know, they're not the same. But it's not losing track of the sonority of the whole texture. Uh, It's like being able as a symphony conductor to hear all 83 different instruments playing different parts and to know that each part is doing its own bit and at the same time to hear and not lose track of the whole that they're all a part of. Mm. So it's uh, as Teilhard de Chardin once famously said, it's a... uh, it's a paroxysm of harmonized complexity. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so we have many, many different unclarities. Uh, and I think it's going to take a long time uh, before the, the Christian uh, niche really comes to any sort of consensus of what we're talking about, about non-duality and uh, how we even recognize it, much less how we train for it.
0: Hmm. Well, you said earlier that in your heart of hearts you are God. And if we understand God to be omnipresent, and I think that there's actually evidence for that if we want to look at it, that anything we look at closely we see that amazing intelligence functioning, then if God is omnipresent, then can there be anything other than God? And if there is anything other than God, then He can't be omnipresent. There's, there's something that's separate and discreet from from that ocean of intelligence. And if that's the the way things are, things are, that's the way it is, then that allows for all the diversity and complexity and so on that you were just mentioning, while at the same time containing all that diversity within a unified wholeness. And I think the whole notion is that one, that, that unified wholeness can become a living reality, thus kind of reconciling uh, the paradox and ambiguity that Richard Rohr talks about in fact, Nisargadatta, exactly. Nisargadatta said that, used those same two words. He said, "Spiritual maturity is the capacity to appreciate paradox and ambiguity."
1: exactly exactly and of course you know one of the most valuable tools that has come to us from ken wilbur and his many many valuable tools is his articulation of what he calls the line level differentiation Mm -hmm. that we tend to uh then that we tend to mix up the level of consciousness in a religion or the level at which is the, the the truth is being articulated with a whole kind of theology of the religion
2: good
1: point and and that christianity uh has often been castigated as being a dualistic religion because most of its theology has been articulated at a dualistic level Mm -hmm. in which God is perceived to be other and we're taught that we are creatures and we are not God, which means presumably there's a place where I stop and God begins and vice versa. We're still taught to, to quake in our boots when the word pantheism is mentioned. And so Christianity is largely playing out and articulating itself in dualistic spheres. So people say it's a dualistic religion. But I think this is not the case. And I think that it maintains a very, very subtle teaching at the non-dual level, but that to access that teaching requires you to move beyond not only the theology, but the sort of perceptual mechanisms that people are doing are using to reinforce the level that's the dominant level. And whenever whenever you start to do that, you just trigger the alarms of people that are working at a different level.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, Thomas Keating has been so castigated by the evangelical fundamentalist arm of Christianity. They say he's teaching Buddhism, they're teaching mm-hmm. they say he's teaching New Age, you know. But he's not. He's teaching the non dual level of Christianity, but they can't hear it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Christianity is not a monolith. The the Christianity of Billy Graham or Oral Roberts is not the Christianity of um, Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, referring to those latter two, um, wouldn't you say that if you really understood their experience and teaching, um, you do find non duality? Yeah. No, I, I haven't studied them
1: carefully oh yeah, but yeah. Oh, yeah. oh yeah it just hasn't it so. just
0: hasn't reached the mainstream of Christianity
1: exactly right. exactly that, that in all the mystics you will find that there's a deep apprehension of what would very 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 clearly be cleared you know that that Jim Marion set the easy benchmark when he when he said jesus is non dual because he sees no separation between himself and God and he sees no separation between self and neighbor. Well, I think any of the mystics would would have the same experiences that's yeah. non dual Christianity
0: and I think Jesus would rather have a beer or maybe a wine, as the case may be with <laughs> with St Teresa mm-hmm. than with Oral Roberts
1: <laughs> I think probably, yeah, they'd have a lot more in common,
0: yeah. Um, a question came in from uh, Scott in Phoenix. Um, he says, "I keep coming back to the simple ideas of surrender and compassion. Surrender to the isness and compassion towards myself when I fail." James Finley, Jim Finley, says something about love stepping out and setting this high bar down on the ground so that I may trip over it and fall headlong into God. Can my practice be this simple? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> nice nice
1: answers. Yeah, yep. That high bar of love on the ground is about as good as it gets, and it's absolutely real.
0: Good. All right, let's go back to non-duality a little bit here for a bit. Um, some nice little quotes that just jumped out at me as I was reading your book. You see oneness because you see from oneness. I'll just read a few of these, and you just jump in if you want to comment on them. That's one. Yeah. A, a mind that does not need to separate and exclude in order to perceive reality will encounter far less resistance in the current of life and, and inflict far less violence on others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, are, these are the Cynthia Sutras here. Um, <laughs> non-dual does not mean renouncing the capacity for critical thinking.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one for many people that they they learned, uh, again, back in the 90s when I first came out to 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 be with Thomas Keating and, and Snowmass, there was this sort of, I would think it's almost a kind of marijuana drug culture simplicity that any attempt to use the rational mind was dualism. Mm-hmm and uh any time any any attempt to drive fine intellectual arguments or or to hone to in any use of those uh, was dualistic and so what was non-dualistic was just kind of holding hands and saying we're all one kumbaya yeah yeah, kumbaya kind of, but but it's still, we don't realize that many of the the <coughs> finest Christian thinkers, and some of those ones that you named, that you said, I don't know who they are, Beatrice mm-hmm. Bruto and Bar- yeah. Bruno Barnhart, yeah. beautiful 20th century examples of non-dual thinkers mm-hmm. uh, with very, very finely tuned critical minds. We just need to realize that non-dualism is not an excuse for intellectual laziness. Yeah.
0: Same is true in the Eastern traditions. I mean, Shankara had a brilliant intellect and wrote these deep, penetrating commentaries with big, long sentences of that you, know, you had to very be really clear to follow the logic and so on. He was, exactly. the, he was the founder of Vedanta. And I mean, Avinā. How does he pronounce his name? Avinā who is the, one of the the founder of Kashmir Shaivism. Same thing. Brilliant uh-huh. intellect. So there's just no no conflict and living non-duality does not necessarily mean dumbing it down uh, on the understanding level, intellectual level. Exactly, exactly.
1: My my metaphor, I use this many times, but it's still such a good metaphor that I, I keep coming back to it. It's an image, actually. I, the image of uh, the stained glass window
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, you know, the the undivided light somehow or another gets itself into bits and pieces and they're red and orange and yellow and little trays. And the stained glass window maker assembles them into a beautiful, beautiful window like the rose window at at Snowmass monastery, using his craft to do so, her craft, and creates this beautiful artifact with all these little bits and pieces of color. But it's only when the light rises, the sun in the morning and hits and backlights the window that the whole thing comes together. And you see the act of dance between the particularity, the the created light and all the bits and pieces being harmonized and brought to a high, uh, much more intense level by the the white light that that comes through it. And I think it's a perfect image to me of how the non-dual and the dual, the infinite and the finite work together to mutually enhance each other's capacities and domains. So that the non-dualism, doesn't mean, oh, we're not gonna deal with the color tray, we're not gonna deal with the fine glass artists, we're not gonna make pictures, we're just gonna sit out here and bask in the uncreated light. You have to get in there and, and struggle and create and take on the conditions of this life and the conditions of this planet, uh, jagged edged as they may be, because something is being woven through them that is not simply a return to an original purity but is a pulling along of finitude into some sort of transformed or alchemized infinitude. Mm -hmm. So the the non-dual vocation I think to me is really about learning to jump into life and allow the light to flow through it as a harmonizing oneness in whatever particularity you find yourself in.
0: Yeah, and if I could uh, translate that into real simple terms maybe. um non-duality, if it's truly a living experience, is, is not going to sort of reduce life to being simplistic, it can be and can and needs to be lived in the midst of all the complexity of modern day life and will only um, help to enhance life and help us deal with its problems, much as nourishing the root of a, a tree is going to enable the whole tree to flourish. Exactly. We, yeah. We, is that sort of along the lines of what you were saying there?
1: Very much so, and I think so many of the models that we've we 've used in the past i don 't know whether this is true in the East, but certainly in the West have sort of been agrarian models of contemplation and non-duality you get up on a beautiful mountain in a beautiful mountain valley and you ponder the vast stariness of god and you feel the expansiveness of your soul Uh, all real good but it doesn't speak much when you're actually in the conditions of the slums when you're in when you're in you know a lot of a lot of uh non-dual spiritual culture is Mm anti-technology it's anti-present and i think it's one of the reasons why it's not attracting young people at least in christianity the way it is because if this if this higher as we're calling it higher consciousness is going to be worth its moxie at all uh, it's got to be able to get in there and actually count for something in the ordinary you know currents of life Mm -hmm. it it can't seek refuge in the places where the currents aren't flowing, because the current is life. Yeah. Uh- It's one of the reasons why I took it on when we ran into the challenges around, you know, getting our computers so that Skype would run on my computer. And Uh so that, you know, a couple of trips to Ellsworth, Maine and, you know, some money and technological things. And and I thought, well, I could have said, oh, I'm a non-dual master. I don't I don't bother with this technology. (laughs) But I said, you know, that's just intellectual laziness. This is the challenge. These are the terms of of working in this world, and the conditions we're working on, and you either take it on or you don't take it on.
0: Yeah, and as it is, the computer guys told you that doing that upgrade that I forced you to do um, <laughs> extended the life of your computer a couple of years. So.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, that's the best hundred bucks <laughs> i <I've> ever spent. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just speaking of this whole, well, on this same topic, you know the word yoga really means non-dual, it means union. And there's a the line in the Gita which is, um, yoga is skill in action. So it doesn't mm-hmm. mean yoga is sitting on a mountaintop staring at the clouds, it means you know whatever you have to do, you'll do it more skillfully if you're established in non-duality, truly established. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Here comes a question from uh, Cynthia in Oregon. Uh, she asks, and this is a little bit long but it's a good one, in awakening recognition there is an experience of the Self, capital S, being all and therefore no separate deity, yet There is still, for me, an inclination to occasionally pray or communicate to that which is being, capital B, through all. Without a living guru, I speak to something greater than my appearance. Does prayer or a heart's calling to something greater, even within the the self as self, capital S, have an effect? Is it heard and responded to by a greater awareness? Nice question, Cynthia.
1: Very nice question, very subtle question, and I think it, it cuts right to the chase of, uh, of, of one of the kind of most dysfunctional myths that we've brought along when, uh, you know, Western seekers, awakeners, began to jump sort of willy-nilly into models that were just emerging from the East. So we get the idea that the non-dual is the top of the pinnacle and all these sort of provisional transitory senses of selfhood are simply unreal. And once you hit non-dual and recognize your oneness with the all, you never go back again. And those other kinds of prayers of like getting down on your knees and saying, Lord, help me, uh, uh, you know, are no longer valid conveyors of truth. But they are just seen as, you know, immature. Mm-hmm. We still have a lot of that thinking. But I think the fact is it's all all the time. That we human beings, as long as we're in human skin, are always mediating in a creative way, like honeybees, between the finite and the infinite. And as Ken Wilbur pointed out so brilliantly, another of his m- many helpful tools in his Spirit in First, Second, and Third Persons, he points out that that whole channel of thouness. That whole channel of, of adoring and of worshiping and being devoted is not as it's often construed an immature channel. It's not something that you outgrow when you realize your oneness with the all, but it's a very, very real participation in the heart energy and the basic intimacy of the field that, that the felt sense nature of the universe, of Iness, of realness is thouness. Mm-hmm. And we never transcend it. And when we become so arrogant as to say, I am the all, and then there's nothing left to bow the knee of the heart to, uh, you've simply frozen. That we have to move in these lower levels of selfhood, uh, these more provisional ones, are extremely not only useful, but sacred as channels uh, for the energy of adoration, devotion, and humility, which are the life-giving transforming substances that water the life of this planet.
0: Nice. Um, You know, I don't know if people realize this, but all the sort of non-dual heroes that people refer to these days, such as Ramana, you know, Nasargadatta, Papaji, Shankara, all of them, they're all very great devotees. I mean, Mm -hmm. either to different aspects of God, such as Kali, or Shiva, or this or that, or to their own gurus, or whatever. But they were really into devotion, and Shankar actually said, "He said the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion." So there was seems that there was a sweetness in devotion that they didn't want to miss out on. And here's an exactly. interesting here's an interesting quote from uh, Nisargadatta, which you know, everyone knows who he is. He said, "Forget I am that." He said, "I realized so much more since then. It's so much deeper." He said that shortly before his death.
1: Yeah, yeah, that. Raymond Panikkar, the great Christian non-dual master, said, "You know, he realized that he was uh, he was the thou of an I. Hmm. In other words, that he was not the I and God was the thou, but that that God, the the great I, had called him into thouness. It was a beautiful kind of realization that that both of these paths wind around each other."
0: Yeah, that's great. One little thing I'd like to throw in is that. You know, we have all these faculties, right? We were talking about the intellect earlier and how yeah. non-duality does not um, obviate or obliterate the intellect. And we also have the heart. Actually, I want to talk to you about the heart now, so this is a good segue. Full development or enlightenment or whatever we want to call it is probably going to be conducive to the blossoming of all these faculties. And so when the heart blossoms, there's naturally going to be devotion. So it's not only is non-duality not incompatible with devotion, but it's actually conducive to it. Exactly.
1: And I've I've come to realize more and more that one of the reasons why Christian languaging hangs on so much to the language of the devotional is because it's bearing witness to the fact that that in Christian tradition non-duality happens as the mind gets into the heart. Mm -hmm. And when one perceives in entrainment with the heart, what one experiences, the felt sense equivalent of that, is intimacy. So it speaks of, uh, you know, and one of the reasons why Christianity hangs on so stubbornly to its devotional and therefore theoretically dualistic language is because it's bearing witness to the the emotional signature of a universe seen through the heart.
0: So let's talk more about, about the heart now, because um, you write about a lot about that, and, uh, and you know there's this putting the mind in the heart that you referred to, and you can explain that. Yeah. Ramana talked about self-inquiry, but he actually located the, the, the self, if you had to locate it someplace, as being in the heart, you know, slightly to one yeah. side and so on. I heard you say a similar thing. So let's, let's go on for a bit about the heart. And you take it away. I mean, just uh, what, what can you tell us? What is what is meant by the heart in your teaching or the teachings of those who you had, have been following, and uh, what does it mean to put the mind in the heart?
1: Okay. Well, there's a couple of major major truths here. First of all, sharing you know the greater Western tradition, including uh, particularly Sufism, Christianity, and and I think in in the Kabbalah as well the The heart is an organ of spiritual perception. Mm -hmm. Its first and most important function is to see. And we get this right out of Jesus and the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And over and over, the the Sufi tradition really, really takes this to a fine point. And they have a, a very elaborate teaching about the sheaths of the heart, the layers, the veils of the heart. But it's clear that that. This is the organ of spiritual sight. That this is the noetic organ. That it doesn't have to do with the the brain. It's the brain in the heart. And the the second aspect of let, this. Let me this ask is you a, here:
0: Are we talking about yeah. the physical heart muscle, the heart chakra, or what are we referring to?
1: That's yeah. That's where I'm going to. Okay, um, where we're talking about the physical heart. Okay. To begin with. And that in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, which is where they develop the most subtle and consistent teaching of the mind and the heart, it's clear that they're talking about the physically infleshed heart. Mm-hmm. The heart, you know, there's actually a wonderful little quote that I quote somewhere in the book about one of the guys talking about the Holy Spirit residing in one of the upper chambers. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear when the with the attentional practices that that accompany the the prayer, the Jesus prayer, the prayer of the heart, that there is an attention actually bringing bringing our attention and allowing it to collect in the region of the physical heart. So we're not talking about a metaphor for the center of the person or the seat of the soul, or we're we're talking about a, a connection with the embodied heart. The Western tradition, by and large, does not deal in the chakra language. So you're not going to find anywhere in the Eastern Orthodox talking about the heart versus the heart chakra. Mm -hmm. It's all clearly uh, talking about the physical heart. There's no explicit recognition of a heart chakra. Whether there's an implicit recognition is an open question. Robert Sardello, who's explored this very, very deeply from the contemporary sort of phenomenological point of view, is very clear that that he's talking about the physical heart and he believes the texts are as well, not the heart chakra. One writer who I haven't met personally, but as a very interesting uh, commentator, Olga Lukacheva, who, uh, who studied uh, the, the Jesus prayer, the prayer of the heart, from orthodox masters and also did some work with the uh, Vedanta teaching is much more open to talking about the, the, the chakras and also the chambers and the nerve nexuses on either side but I think for the point of view of the where the Christians have to get over the hump is to understand we're talking about a physically embodied heart something actually in your being in your body that serves as the on-site transmission, receiving and transmitting station for the the conscious awareness. A, a you know a dipole with the brain, and the heart. Math folks were onto very quickly, not too systematically, but they got the idea that the mind and the heart is about entraining the you know the vibrational rhythms of the of the brain to those the greater rhythms of the heart. And when that happens, you can see very clear neurological effects of of coherence and, and a whole different way of thinking. The science needs a lot of calibrating yet, but I think the important thing is to say that we, uh, that as we learn to bring felt sense awareness to the region of the heart and allow that to be the place where this new operating system is grounded, a lot of what the tradition is saying begins to make sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. In my own experience, just it's like you know when I have when, when I am experiencing my heart, it's obviously much more than the physical muscle. And and mm-hmm. whenever I think of anything, including the body, I think of its gross and subtle dimensions. So yeah. even though chakras and all that may not be a thing in in the western in Western tradition, doesn't mean they're not real or that we don't have a subtle body, or that there's not a subtle kind of correlate to every gross form. Exactly, there there
1: manifestly is, and the the Western tradition has been slow to emphasize that because it's always been a little bit spooked about talking about energy. Mm But I think that it's becoming more and more clear that, you know, even as we understand how the heart works, it's an electromagnetic resonator much more than a pump, that it's dealing with energy bandwidths.
0: Yeah. You also say in your book that the heart is an organ of spiritual perception. Its primary function is to look beyond the obvious. And I, and obviously that's rather absurd if we're just talking about the blood pumping muscle. <laughs> you know, exactly. how could that be? Exactly. And, yeah. Here's another thing you say, which I think will help our discussion. You say that the heart seems to mediate between our individual self and a universal process while being representative of that universal process. So it almost sounds like you're describing it as a sort of a a lamp at the door between the universal and the individual.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and in that I'm spinning off of a wonderful line from Joseph Chilton Pierce, mm-hmm. who, really thoughts, uh, who, who really sees the heart as the ombudsman of divine love in a person, whereas the mind is the ombudsman of our individual particularity. Mm-hmm. It's not very scientific, but it's a lovely image. To think of the heart in anything as the ombudsman of divine love.
0: In Explain kind of- that word for those who might not have English as their native language or whatever. Ombudsman
1: well ombudsman of course yeah is the one in a in a university system or a corporation is the one who's really appointed to be your uh, your supporter your defender uh, proactively to champion your cause okay. your spokesperson your your da <laughs> uh,
0: and you say the heart needs to be purified it gets jammed by lower level noise the passions which divide it a heart that is divided by competing inner agendas, I love this, a heart that is divided by competing inner agendas is like a wind-tossed sea, unable to reflect on its surface the clear image of the Moon."
1: Yeah, yeah, and of course in the the classic tradition of the West, which was in in effect up to at least the 19th century. The passions didn't mean your drama, it didn't mean your joie de vivre or your vital alaan like we now see it today. Passion is a very specific, even technical word, essentially meaning stuck emotions. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of emotion, a lot of energetic turbidity and turmoil stuck around a fixed agenda or fixed sense of self. Mm-hmm. So your classic emotions, if you if you look at even the AA mad Bad, sad, glad. You notice they all have a point of view in them. They're all with regard to me. You know, and what's bad for me makes somebody else glad. So when things get stuck, when the feelingfulness, the flowingness of that energy gets stuck around a personal agenda, particularly an unconscious one, or a very identified one then you get stuck in the situation called the passion and what that does classically it's a it's a direct quote from the, the from one of the great desert fathers or the russian fathers in the falokalia the problem with the passions is they divide the heart mm. in other words they make it incapable of functioning in its primary function as an organ of sight and when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he doesn't mean blessed are those who don't have sex, for they shall see God. <laughs> purity, in, purity in heart meant undividedness. It meant the field was not uh, parceled out and, and entrapped and held, held captive to the passions. Yeah. So a lot of the work was teaching what in the, in the East has the wonderful name non-identification equanimity, the capacity not to, not to reactively grab onto things and make it all about me, all about my drama. Because when you do that, you're sabotaging the capacity of the heart <coughs> to really process cosmic feelingfulness.
0: Nice. And in your book you say, attention of the heart is attained not by concentration, but, by letting go of all that one is clinging to that would be the passions, I guess relinquish yeah relinquishing the passions and relaxing the will, so that kind of brings us full circle to what we were talking about before with centering prayer and meditation, which is exactly kind of a surrendering process of releasing the grip like you 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 demonstrate yeah. by dropping a pencil or something, you know how hard is it exactly, to do
1: that? yeah, that's what centering prayer is, it's releasing the grip, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the two joysticks, if you wish. For really beginning to move towards the new program, because when you let go of that which you're grabbing or which is more likely grabbing you then uh, then you're cl- clearing the space and you're returning the the heart to its pure or if you want to call it that virgin state of non-attachment so that's that's the practice that's the piece that centering prayer captures and works on so brilliantly that classic, repeated, small teaching people to let go when they're trapped, Mm -hmm. to let go when they've grabbed on. And when you begin to learn to do that in the laboratory of meditation, just practicing releasing, 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 it has carryover value into life. You begin to spot more carefully when you're getting seized in the grip of of an anger or an entitlement or a self-justification. And you do the same thing because it's come to represent prayer to you. Prayer is release. So then you're really working that. The other joystick, of course, is the concentrating of attention at the sensate level in the region of the heart, which is an advanced practice which should most likely be done under a guide. It traditionally has. But those two together, the letting go of the attachments, which is the, preparatory for recognizing and letting go of passions keeping your heart clean keeping your heart virgin is is really supremely the work of centering prayer
2: mm-hmm.
1: which sets us up to move into that sight that organ of luminous sight impregnated with love because it's in the heart
0: and i sugge- mm-hmm. i would surmise that you know if your heart isn't clean and virgin then somehow Cleaning it and restoring its its uh, integrity and purity.
1: Right, and and these there could are be a lot of great...
0: detritus that has accumulated, you know.
1: Yeah, and it's it's moment by moment, and uh, you know, if you take virgin and pure and clean, not to be idealistic states, but as a a nanosecond and something that's always moving, we're attached mm. or unattached, and in every instant we're grabbing on and letting go grabbing on and letting go so the use of the word virgin which is my word is simply to say it looks at the place where we've let go where we're not grabbed or grabbing or entitled or clinging or clutching Mm -hmm. uh, either to something really simple like a thought or a state that we prefer or anything but we're able to just be there with the is that's the virgin state the the state of equanimity and the impure, which we fall into, we tumble into it, you know, almost with every breath, is the, the grabbing, the fixated, the clinging, the insisting, the, all that. So it's flow. It's not one or the other. Neither one can be a steady state without the other, at least in this life, I think. But as we're more quick to recognize when we get trapped and pulled back into the small self, and the heart goes offline, like my television camera, uh, because its its energy is being absorbed in the passions. If we recognize that a little bit more clearly, then we can move back to it uh, much more quickly, into a state where we're in touch with those non-dual co- currents and moving with the skillful skill and action of the yoga. Yeah,
0: I would suggest that uh, even though it is a moment-to-moment process, at the same time it is a phenomenon that the heart and the nervous system in general accumulates impressions, deep impressions. Yeah. And that the more burdened one is by those impressions, deeply rooted, the more inclined one will be to sort of act reactively or impulsively or inappropriately and and so on. And so, you know, we have our work cut out for us as as a long-term project to progressively, even though there's a moment-to-moment, Thing to be done. There's a, also progressive purification yeah. to be accomplished.
1: Exactly, and and you watch it. The mature people who put in their years in the journey. Uh, I would say that that I've noticed a couple of stages. First of all, the the moments of pure, pellucid seeing and presence tend to come more often and last a little bit longer. But the other thing is that there's a greater alertness and recognizing when you're getting caught and shifting yeah a greater ability to see and because of that kind of paradoxically there's less fear of falling Mm. and I think this is really important because a lot of us are really afraid to fall so we try and maintain this kind of artificial high purity of the enlightened Uh, I think that's great when you're in your 60s, but for the ones that get older and you watch them growing, uh, they they're totally not afraid to be essentially simply human Mm -hmm. because they know that quickly they can, you know, they can smell from the inside when it's gotten caught. So it's a it's got a different quality to it.
0: Yeah, someone asked me about that, you know, whether you get caught up in things like we do. And he said, yeah, but only for a moment. And then I'm back. Uh, whereas you yeah. might you might get caught up for days or something.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I think exactly. one way of understanding that is if I used this analogy before, but if you could, if you could sort of like, if you're at the if you're at the, the source of a river, theoretically you could send the river off in any direction. Whereas if you're way down halfway downstream or at the mouth of the river, it's too late. The river has this momentum and it's already gone run its course. Exactly. So if you don't catch the impulses of desire and thought until they're way expressed it's too late to redirect them, but if you can sort of reside at that level from which they arise, then you're kind of at the master switchboard, and and without being manipulative, you have a simple, gentle shift of attention or will can send life off in a completely more appropriate direction. Exactly.
1: And what happens is the river of the lived life will catch up with you and carry you at some point, so Mm -hmm. that that, uh, I've always been a little bit reluctant about having people Cut off experience too quickly. Sometimes you've just got to go through a bad day and deal with all the things, Mm -hmm. and it'll come out. The the it'll be because its periodicity is the next day. It's not going to solve itself naturally in twenty four hours. So you just realize, okay, I'm going to be fragile. I'm going to be vulnerable for the time. Don't take it seriously. And allow things to have their natural swing without always using your spiritual practice to correct back too fast, which becomes a kind of repression, actually.
0: Yeah, you want to be spontaneous and natural, by all means. Yeah. 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 Good. Well, we've covered a lot. Um, I'm sure we, yeah. could, we could probably do another two hours, but not right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, Yeah. all right.
0: <laughs> time
1: to, it's probably your lunch time.
0: Yeah, it's getting there. So do you have any thoughts that you'd like to wrap up with?
1: Well, nothing in particular. I mean, I, I'm thrilled to know that I'm going to be seeing you at the S.A.N.D. conference in a couple of weeks
0: now. Yeah, that'll be fun. Maybe we can come to each yeah. other's talks if we're not otherwise engaged.
1: Hopefully, that'll be great. I'm, and I really appreciate, you know, I waited through that wonderful biographies and program titles and contents that you put together in such a usable form, it's gonna be quite the conference.
0: It will be, yeah. I do that because it's impossible to figure it all out otherwise, there's so many things going on at the same time, so I always create this program that I can so quickly scan.
1: Yeah, it's so great, it's like how many non doors does it take to change a life goal? Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> I may send an update to that actually. Uh, all right, well thanks, there's, there's a fellow who's been watching the chat named Jeremy who made a nice comment, what an extraordinary teaching, thanks Cynthia for a truly illuminating experience. So that's a good way oh, to conclude here. Oh, that's great. Yeah.
1: Great, good. wonderful, well I think I know who that Jeremy is, so I'm sending greeting, greetings. Good.
0: Well go out and enjoy your sailboat, and uh, okay. sounds like a fun thing to do. Um, I spent a year at a prep school in Massachusetts when I was a teenager and did a lot of sailing on Buzzards Bay. Uh, ah, okay. With a fellow, and the fellow I did it with was, was from Maine, actually. So
1: ah, well, all right. Yeah. I will think of you as I get the boat off if of it's morning. Good.
0: All right, so let me just make a couple of concluding remarks. Um, you've been watching an interview with Cynthia Bourgeot on Boot at the Gas Pump. Um, this is an ongoing series. Uh, go to batgap.com and check out the menus, and uh, you know, see if there's anything there you'd like to do, like sign up for the email, or sign up for the podcast, or donate, or you know, anything else. Uh, there's not too many. It's not too complicated. Just check out the different menus, and uh, see you next week. Next week I'll be interviewing another woman with a French name, uh, Vera de Chalambert. <laughs> I'm on a roll here, and uh, I think she'll be a very interesting. She's also associated with the, the Sand Conference. Uh, I was reading one of their emails and I thought, this is so beautifully written, who wrote this? And I, I checked with Maurizio and he said, oh, it was Vera, so I thought, I've got to talk to Vera. So I'll be doing that next week.
1: Oh yeah, I, she interviewed me for something once, she was just lovely, yeah. you know, just such a gentle, heartful, beautiful soul, so yeah.
0: you should have fun. I will, yeah. Maybe thanks.
1: I'll tune in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it,
0: please. Okay. Alright, so thanks everybody, okay. we'll see you for the next one. Thanks Cynthia.
1: Sure. Bye Rick, thank you.
0: You're welcome.